Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. It's been two weeks since the deadly attack by Hamas on civilians in southern Israel on October 7th happened. As war rages on one border and threatens a second, the country is still reeling in pain and disbelief over more than 1,000 of its citizens who were lost. The unprecedented wild card in the equation of this conflict are the Israelis who were kidnapped and taken over the border into Gaza, causing their families unbearable anguish as they watch, wait, and worry. One of the very first advocacy efforts on behalf of a kidnapped Israeli was a hashtag that appeared on social media called Bring Hirsch Home on behalf of 23-year-old Hirsch Goldberg Polin, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen. Hirsch was kidnapped following his attendance at the Nova Music Festival, and he was known to be seriously injured at the time he was taken. Here with us on the podcast is Hirsch's mother, Rachel Goldberg, speaking from her home in Jerusalem. A surprise assault by land, sea, and air. How are you going to get these hostages back? The ruthless attack by Hamas has left us shaken. The walls closing in, the floor opening under my feet, total insecurity. Over the next few weeks, the Shalom Hartman Institute is launching a special series with Yossi Klein Halevi and Daniel Hartman as they reflect on the current war in Israel. I have no vengeance in my heart and I have no anger. I just know that our life here in Israel is constantly this close to failure. Listen to Israel at War at shalomhartman.org forward slash for heaven's sake or on the For Heaven's Sake podcast feed. Rachel Goldberg, mother of Hirsch Goldberg Polin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast at this difficult time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you don't mind, we'll start with the news. I understand there's some new information on Hirsch. A video was received. Uh, yeah, through a crazy, crazy uh, twist. You know, we haven't had any word from Hirsch since uh, October 7th in the morning when he was, we have eyewitnesses who have told us that he was uh, abducted from one of the bomb shelters and that when he stood up, when they, you know, held him by gunpoint and said, come with us, uh, his left arm had been blown off from just above the elbow and he was loaded onto a Hamas pickup truck and headed toward Gaza. And his last phone signal was at 10.25 a.m. Saturday morning. But that was, uh, and that's all we know. And the truth is, that's still all we know. However, um, we, as, as you know, have been doing a lot of media, a lot of press, because once we knew about this uh, grave injury, we thought we need to get you know, moving to save his life. And so anyone who asked for an interview, we've been having conversation with them. And one of those people was CNN and Anderson Cooper. And we've met with him several times, had several interviews with him. But one of the interviews that we had at the end of the interview, Anderson Cooper called and he said, have you guys seen any video of Hirsch? And we said no. And we've had a friend who's been searching through all those horrible videos that um, are out there. And Anderson said, I have a video of your son. And he said, I 
you know, had heard your story and I had read Rachel's, um, I, I did an op-ed piece in the New York Times and he had read it um, that described Hirsch's injuries. And he said that he had, Anderson had been doing a documentary about the music festival from which Hirsch was kidnapped. And he said, while he was interviewing people down where the music festival had taken place, there was an Israeli soldier there who showed him a video that they found because one of the terrorists had dropped their camera. And the video uh, Anderson sent to us, and it is Hirsch getting into a pickup truck. We see him from behind using his right arm to hoist himself into the truck on his own, very calmly. I'm sure he was in terrible shock. And when he turns to sit down, you see this stump this bloody stump um, where his left arm used to be. And uh, he sits down and he sort of puts his head down on his knees. So we got this video. John watched it right away. I didn't want to see it. John has probably watched it a hundred times. He felt like this bit of hope somehow from seeing that Hirsch was walking on his own. He seemed strong enough to hoist himself with his non-dominant hand, Hirsch's left-handed, um, as am I. Now, the truth is it doesn't help us in terms of knowing any more information. And to be honest with you, he might have bled out in that truck 10 minutes later. So it doesn't really help, but somehow John feels that Hirsch looked calm and and seemed physically strong enough that he you see him walk over to the truck and just use his right arm and hoist himself up into the truck but it's just a crazy circuitous way to get information about Hirsch through Anderson Cooper who I might add was so gentle and kind and has been such a mensch about it because he said I want no credit. I don't want to show this if you don't want me to show this. I didn't want to show, I didn't, he didn't mention it in the interview, you know, and some journalists could have done that for the excitement of that story. And he's just been such a gentle, kind, supportive person. Um, and we spoke to him again last night and we, he was here at our house this morning. So that's the crazy story about how we got the video. It's also very helpful for us because you know, a lot of people are not aware that Hirsch has a life-threatening injury. So when we're talking about people who need to be quickly brought back, um, you know, to us, this is a life or death situation. It sounds like you didn't draw as much encouragement and hope from the video as your husband did. Did you watch it? Well, so ultimately, before we did put it out there, because an Israeli... Um, TV show, Olpan Shishi, came to interview us on Friday, and they and we felt that it's important that people see the extent of this injury. Because what's also really crazy on the video itself, aside from the fact that you hear the yelling and, you know, the commotion that's going on, you also hear Anderson Cooper, who was, because he took a video of the video. So, like, someone was showing him and his team, the video, and you hear him say, Jesus Christ, he has no arm. Wow. 
And he said that was what resonated with him. He kept thinking of this kid who looked really calm. And if you didn't catch it, because the shot is from the right side, so you just see him hoisting himself up, but then he turns and you see this bloody stump and it, it takes your breath away. I was concerned that if I didn't see it, I would end up running into it somewhere. But today when we were meeting with these senators, John was saying, you know, do you have, I forget what it is, 56 seconds to watch this video with me. So I sat with John and with my daughter and I, you know, took a few deep breaths and I, and I watched it very quickly and, you know, it takes your breath away. It could be anybody's son, anybody's grandson, anyone's brother, anyone's friend. What senators did you meet with today? Uh, so there were 10 of them. There were five Republicans and five Democrats. And um, the ones that I remember, because I'm in a complete daze and I have no idea what's going on. I haven't slept in 16 days, are Cory Booker, Chris Coons from Delaware, Lindsey Graham, and uh, um, Richard Blumenthal, um, among others. And they were wonderful to meet with. And they are meeting this evening with the war cabinet. So you know, it was important to have their ear and have them understand, you know, from all of us. It was very helpful to have them hear from us. Did you draw encouragement over the weekend uh, with the release of uh, Judith Renan and her daughter, Natalie, who are also like Hirsch, American citizens? Does it give you hope that there is some kind of channel for negotiation going on that uh, could help Hirsch as well? Well, first of all, I might also add that they are also from Chicago. And, you know, Hirsch's roots are Chicago roots. John and I were born and raised in Chicago. So we were thrilled for them, absolutely thrilled for their family. We know exactly what they've been going through. So that was a tremendous, uh, you know, moment of relief. Um, I might add that they still have eight family members from the Renan family that are being held hostage, but they're, um, they're not American, they're Israeli. We just spoke with um, their family. So first of all, I was thrilled for them. And I, you know, for sure am hopeful that the powers that are making that happen and that made that happen will continue to see, see it through. And I know that it's not easy. And I know that it's tireless. And I know it requires all sorts of acrobatics and strength and perseverance and we appreciate it and we are praying that it keeps going so that you know all the grandmothers and the babies and all these you know music lovers and all the hostages and of course the wounded hostages who are in life-threatening situations like Hirsch um, are released extremely soon. You talk about the Chicago roots. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, uh, where you're from, how you came to Israel, about Hirsch? So John and I were both born and raised in Chicago. Um, I grew up downtown and he grew up on the near north side. Um, we both went to Jewish day schools. Um, I didn't come from a religious Jewish background. John was born and raised um, in an observant Jewish home. And... Um, through serendipity or a basharet, we um, ended up in the same school for high school and the same Jewish high school. 
and we're very much Chicagoans. Our, uh, our mothers both still live in Chicago. All of our extended cousins, John's sister, um, you know, we're diehard Cubs fans and we pay taxes in Illinois. And <laughs> so we feel very connected. Um, and, uh, Hirsch was born in Berkeley, California. Um, and so was his sister, uh, Libby. And we were there until Hirsch was four. And then we moved to Richmond, Virginia. And we were there for another almost four years. And then we decided to move to Israel. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about the weekend that Hirsch was taken? He was with you just the night before Friday night dinner, right? Right. So we went to synagogue together for Simchat Torah and Shabbat. And he had said to us, I'm going to go out with his, one of his closest friends is named Honor Shapira. And he had said, Honor and I are going to be doing something tonight, camping out somewhere. Um, and so he brought his backpack with um, to shul, with us to shul, to synagogue. And then we went to Good Friends for dinner and with two other families. And we had a great meal. And it was just, it was wonderful. It was a normal, great meal. And at 11 o'clock, he kissed me. He kissed John. He hugged our hosts and said goodbye. And we stayed, you know, eating more dessert and drinking coffee or tea. And he left. And, um, that's the last time I ever saw him. Um, and then Saturday morning, John had left for synagogue at seven 30 and I was having a cup of tea in our kitchen. And then I heard the sirens going off the bomb sirens, which, um, is kind of unusual in Jerusalem. So I went down to wake up my girls who were both still sleeping and we got into our bomb shelter and waited the, you know, 10 minute protocol wait and we didn't hear anything. So we came out and I thought, I know Hirsch and Honor are sleeping out, but I don't know exactly where they are. I'm turning on my phone. Normally I don't use my phone on Shabbat. And I turned on my phone at 8.20, I think it was 8.23. And I saw immediately two WhatsApps had popped up consecutively at 8.11. The first one said, I love you. And the second one said, I'm sorry. And immediately, I, you know, like my throat closed and I thought, you know, something horrible is happening. So I tried calling him. It rang and rang. I tried texting him. They've, those texts have never been answered. And then it was, how do I figure out where these boys are? And um, thankfully, Libby, you know, she's 20 years old, so she knows how to use social media and how to search for things, which I have no idea. Um, and she right away found an advertisement for the nature music festival. And it just, we knew that's so them honor is a, is was a musician and Hirsch had traveled to six different music festivals this past summer, over nine weeks, he went by himself and had a wonderful time. So I screenshot the advertisement and sent it to their third friend. They have, they're like a little three musketeer group. And the third friend was in Greece on that Shabbat, but he saw my message. I said, are Hirsch and Honor here? And he said, yes. So then we immediately knew we're in trouble because already the news was coming out that there was a massacre taking place at this music festival. And 
you know, and that's where everything started to go into an alternate universe that we're stuck in now. So the online detective work that you've done and the networking and talking to people has helped you get somewhat of a picture of what happened to Hirsch uh, when the attack took place? We actually have a very sharp picture of what happened because we had immediately already by noon, I want to say, there was, we had our own Hamal here. We had our own situation room. Uh, John had written to, you know, everyone started turning on their phones because everybody was worried. And then, ever, you know, so a bunch of people who normally we wouldn't have been able to contact came over right away. And it wasn't friends coming to hug us. It was people coming to work. And everyone was trying to figure out where are these boys and, you know, at first, uh, lots of lists were coming out with names and saying, oh, they're at Kibbutzad. Oh, they're at Patish. Oh, they're at Ofakim, uh, Afikim, Ofakim, sorry. Um, and every time we'd see their names on these lists, we would call someone there and they would go to check. And always it was not the correct information because what it turns out, those lists were simply... When people would show up, they'd say, who else had, had you seen at the music festival? Just to kind of like gather who were the popular, who are the people who were there who we need to look for. But the lists were, you know, so that was also heartbreaking because people kept say, sending me his picture on the same list saying, yay, he's at Kibbutzad, he's okay. And we had already checked and we knew those lists weren't accurate. And then we even had people by... Saturday night. I mean, I don't even think you can call these people friends. They're just so much more than friends. They went to the hospitals to look through the unidentified bodies that were brought in to try to find Hirsch. Um, and finally, at some point, and I can't remember the timeline because everything has just, you know, I'm living in another dimension, but somebody sent a screenshot of a picture taken within a bomb shelter and we saw Hirsch and honor in the picture. So at first we were thrilled because we thought, okay, they weren't killed in the field at the, at the uh, music festival, but we kept saying, so why haven't they called? Like, here's this picture of them and they seem, everyone seems tired and just sort of standing around. And what we came to find out is, um, First of all, the situation room people started to, we have a lot of young people who were here, friends of Hirsch's who I've never met, who came over and they started using that screenshot to spread it all over social media and saying, who do you recognize in this picture? And we were getting people saying, oh, that's my friend's sister. And so we were able to get, you know, they pieced together, how can we talk to these people? And we got out whiteboards and we started diagramming where people were and who they were with and who was connected to who and how do we have this phone number and you know part of the problem was that even the kids who were rescued and i'll explain what we ended up finding out but they were so traumatized that for the first 48 hours no one could talk to us so you know we lost some time but it was simply not an option to get the information and what we ended up learning from eyewitnesses who were in the bomb shelter is that Hirsch 
and Honor and two other kids got into a car to escape the music festival. Rockets were falling. People were shooting at people on the road. So they got out along with a bunch of, I mean, there were thousands of people trying to escape this, you know, these young people trying to escape this music festival. A bunch of them got out and ran into a bomb shelter that I understand normally would hold about 12 people. There were, I think there were 29 people mashed in there. And ultimately um, Hamas was coming closer and closer and they could hear them shooting and coming closer and yelling and coming closer. And they ended up coming to the door of the bomb shelter and throwing in hand grenades. That was the first thing they did. Hirsch was mushed a little bit back up against a wall uh, next to the girl who had been driving. Honor was in the, in the doorway. And everyone who has given us eyewitness accounts has said that Honor was the reason that anyone walked out of there alive. Honor was picking up these hand grenades and tossing them back out, picking up, tossing, picking up, tossing. Now you only have four and a half seconds from when you pull the pin of a hand grenade until it detonates. So, I mean, his agility and his ability to think so quickly on his feet is just unbelievable. But of, everyone said there were 11 thrown in. He threw out eight, but three got through. And the damage in a tiny room, you know, smashed with people with three detonated hand grenades, the carnage was horrible. And then after that, Hamas came in with an RPG and with machine guns and were just spraying the room, this tiny room. So most of those kids ended up dying. Um, the witnesses we spoke to were quote unquote lucky because they were trapped under the dead bodies or the people who were so terribly wounded that they were in the process of dying. So those people underneath the bodies pretended to be dead. When Hamas walked in a couple minutes after they let the dust settle, they said to these three young men who were injured, but they could see they were still alive, Hirsch being one of them. And at gunpoint, they said, stand up and come outside. And that's when we found out when Hirsch stood up, all the witnesses that we spoke to who were peeking out from under the dead bodies said uh, Hirsch's left arm had been blown off, but that he had somehow fashioned some sort of bandage or tourniquet um, in that lull, and uh, that none of the three boys cried out. None of them made any noise. I'm sure they were in complete shock. One of the other boys had a bullet in his leg, um, and they left. And that's what we know happened. And um, tragically, we, uh, we got confirmation last week that Honor's body was found uh, in the bomb shelter. They were able to identify him. And uh, we just spoke to Honor's parents. They came to visit us on Friday, and the Hevre Kadisha told them, the um, burial society told them that um, when they were preparing his body in his hand, he had a hand grenade. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it's a terrible, terrible story. Under the circumstances, it's terrible to say that your son who is being held by Hamas in Gaza is lucky, but it sounds almost miraculous that he made it out alive. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, what we've been saying all along, um, we've been saying a lot of sentences that we think that sentence does not make any sense. You know, like when you say, oh, thank God he was kidnapped. 
Right. Sentences like that. So you met with the congressman today. Can you tell us about the kind of contact you've had with Israeli government officials, with U.S. officials? Do you feel like they have your back, that they're helping you cope with this impossible situation, that you're getting real help and real support from both of them? And do you feel one of them is handling this better than the other? Well, look, I think that they're very different. Um, They're equipped in different ways. Right now in Israel, we are in complete pandemonium and chaos and catastrophe. We are being attacked still. Um, We're at war. We have 200 people missing, you know, more than 200. Uh, We have soldiers who are dying. We have so much on our plate that I understand that we're stretched really thin. Uh, Having said that, the police were in touch with us the very first day. We were in touch with the police um, and um, the army, and we have spoken to people uh, in the government. It was slower, but I didn't. I understood that. I truly did. Now, part of that is also because, A, I had this incredible team around me supporting me and we were doing our own work. And B, we called the American embassy uh, on Saturday, October 7th. And they have been outstanding, unbelievably outstanding. And so, you know, between having the Israeli officials that we have and having this team in our house every day that we have and having the American administration and Congress, you know, really being available, we do feel the support. Support only goes so far in that support doesn't let you sleep at night. Support doesn't let you eat. Support doesn't let you go to pieces a couple times a day, but it is helpful. And it is very supportive. And the other thing that I'll say that is really a life lesson for me is, um, you know, people write you one line WhatsApps or one line emails and it's helpful. I don't know how to explain it. It's helpful. And that people, I know people are davening for him. I know people are praying for him every day. I know people are saying to him for him and it helps us. It, It absolutely helps us. I'm sure that people will be happy to hear that uh, back from you because you wonder when you do things like that whether or not it really helps. Well, um, I've always thought, you know, when when someone passes away or someone had a surgery or someone, you know, is going through a tough time, I generally am a one line, you know, I'm thinking of you and, you know, a heart emoji. And I do think to myself, I mean, am I being ridiculous? Like how in the world is this helping someone? Well, you know what? Now I know it does. I've covered several events now with families of uh, hostages, a couple of press conference. I went to the empty Shabbat table um, installation in front of the Tel Aviv Museum. Mm-hmm. And I see I see a range of reactions of the families. Some are purely focused on their loved ones, don't want to discuss the war, don't want to discuss the priorities. But some are pretty outspoken and they're saying they, they see the government with the dual goals of removing Hamas from Gaza and pursuing the war and freeing the hostages and they feel like freeing the hostages or the hostages are not getting the kind of priority that they want it to see. Are you one of the families who just doesn't want to talk about that? Or are you pressuring the Israeli government to think about the hostages as they go about prosecuting the war? I mean, I think it makes sense that this is a very divisive and emotional issue um, for us, 
it's very clear that October 7th can never happen again. Um, and that we need to deal with what happened. We also have a son who happens to be there. There are 200, you know, innocent hostages. I'll mention there also are hundreds of thousands of innocent Gazans who are also trapped there. Um, and I realize that. Um, I think that Israel usually has a very uh, capable and calculated and well thought out plan before they ever try to do anything that will involve causing unnecessary harm to innocent people. Um, I think that's always our goal. But as we know, in any war, in any conflict around the world, mistakes are made, uh, innocent people get their lives torn apart. And I, I am hoping and praying that the government is using every ounce of thoughtfulness and um, wisdom when they're making their plan. And I think that uh, it's very hard when you have people in the street who have gone through complete and utter trauma, the likes of which we haven't seen since, you know, back in the days of the pogroms or in the Shoah. And, and they are thirsty for a response immediately, a very active, uh, aggressive response. And I, I hear it. Um, I think we just have to be careful, even, you know, we cannot forsake the fact that there are hostages there, which, who, by the way, are from more than 30 countries. I mean, this isn't an Israel, Gaza, oh my gosh, hostage. There are people from over 30 countries who are comprised in that, um, in that hostage situation. But I think we just have to be very careful about, um, you know, not, not causing harm that we can't undo. And I do think there is time to plan this out in a way where we also don't create a situation where our soldiers are embroiled in something that's going to bring us so much more pain and, and danger and loss of life. Rachel, I am so grateful to you for coming on the podcast. I guess just as a closing, I'm sure a lot of people are extremely moved by your story and um, would like to do whatever they could to help. Is there anything that people concerned in Israel or overseas around the world um, can do to help you? Well, first of all, I would say, um, again, I'm old and I don't even have Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, but there is um, a group that put together Bring Hirsch Home, and apparently there's a lot of information on that, um, you know, on what you can do um, that can be found there. I do think that people, you know, just writing a letter to either our, you know, there's local politicians, there's uh, the war cabinet, or people who have connections to any other country's government who can write to them on behalf of these 200 people from over 30 countries that are currently being held hostage by a terrorist organization. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that what's been extremely frustrating for us is that from as soon as we heard about his arm, we, we contacted the Red Cross, 
Doctors Without Borders, Physicians for Human Rights. And we said, can anyone just go, you know, I've been talking, I've made I've made friends with people who I never would think this would be the reason I'm friends with them. But, you know, I made friends with the woman whose grandmother who survived the Holocaust is there. I am friends with the woman whose nephew, who's, you know, 11 years old, is there by himself. I'm, you know, I've made all these friends and everybody um, has concerns. There's someone with diabetes there. There's someone with Parkinson's disease. There's someone who needs their heart medication. We have Hirsch who could be bleeding to death or have sepsis setting in because of his arm not being treated properly. We want an international humanitarian aid organization access to see the hostages and even to give us proof of life. You know, we don't know that he's alive. We don't know that any of them are alive. And to hear that they really are actually doing well after assessment by a neutral, trusted international aid organization. And all of them have said to us, and my husband speaks to them almost daily, we're here at the border, we're waiting to go in, but they have to open the door. So, you know, if anyone has any way to, you know, encourage Hamas to open the door to the Red Cross, who could also see some of these civilians that were being told have been uh, really affected. I, I think that it's a reasonable ask to let this humanitarian aid get to people who need it. Rachel Goldberg, mother of Hirsch Goldberg Polin, thank you, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I hope it helps. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Rachel Goldberg, and to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.